You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast summer series. I'm Vesper Stamper, and I'll be your guest host for today's show. My guest today is author and illustrator John Hendricks. John Hendricks is a New York Times bestselling illustrator and author of many children's books, including Miracle Man, The Story of Jesus, and The Faithful Spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Plot to Kill Hitler. John's work combines impeccable page design, flawless drawing, and illustrated text with a whimsy and poignancy that call the viewer into the full range of the heights and depths of life. John is also a professor of illustration at the Sam Fox School of Art and Design at Washington University in St. Louis, where he is chair of the MFA in Illustration and Visual Culture. As a reminder, patrons of the podcast can enjoy additional interview segments and exclusive patron-only content. You can find out more about this at patreon.com slash makersandmystics or in the show notes of this episode. This is my interview with author-illustrator John Hendricks. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? Good. Welcome to Makers and Mystics. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have you and I'm excited to spend the next hour as just two illustrators kind of geeking out about what we do. That's right. Two illustrators cutting it up. That's right. (laughs) All right. So I always like to start by asking a little bit about your childhood. So what was your childhood like? Oh, I had no, I'm not prepped for this. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, did you always draw? Were you that art kid? Tell us about We John. Oh, man. Well, okay. So, you know, you visit schools and, you know, kids always ask you when you started drawing or, you know, actually what's more common for adults to say, when did you start drawing? Uh, And I I think most people don't remember drawing, like their first drawing. And I I mean, I'm that way. I don't remember a time before drawing. Um, I think for most people at some point, you just sort of stop or you, you hit that 12, 13 year old period of your life where you start becoming self-conscious and, and you realize, oh, maybe I'm not as good at this thing I enjoy as other people. Um, and I think that's natural. Everybody goes through that. But, you know, for whatever reason, from a young age, I identified drawing as, as part of my identity or it was just like a very core practice to who I thought I was. And I, I cannot tell you where that came from. Like my parent, my mom is creative and my, my dad was in the Navy and, you know, was a, was a business guy, but you know, I don't, I don't remember them giving me lessons or telling me drawing was a great career. It was just something I always had to do. Did they ever try to dissuade you from it at all? Or were they pretty supportive? No, I, I have always told my, my dad this, he was a real blessing to me where he didn't really get what, what I did as a kid. I, I think he was in awe of it genuinely because it just was so different than him. But, you know, he was in the Navy for 30 years, but he never, I, I don't remember one time where he was like, you know, this drawing is sort of not for real men or whatever. I, I, I never had that uh, conversation with him. So I feel very blessed uh, in, in that way. Um, although one time I told him I wanted to play the piccolo and he said that that's not a man's instrument. So he, he may have saved me from a career as a piccolo player. And I don't know why I, I don't know what gave me the idea to play the piccolo, but. So besides your childhood, I mean, every artist has that kind of awakening or epiphany, like 
either, you know, that this is what I want to do as a living or where you kind of jump light years ahead, you know? And Mm. I want to know, it doesn't have to be in your childhood or whatever, but like, what was your most formative incubation period as an artist? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, okay. So C.S. Lewis tells a story about he and his brother when they were growing up at, at, you know, the house, their childhood home, they, his brother brought in the garden, some flowers and some moss in a little uh, cookie tin and brought it into the house. And Lewis and his brother Warney like played inside of the tin and it felt like to Lewis, like a, like his own garden of Eden and he could make characters that lived in it. And it was a very formative experience for him. And, and I, I remember something similar about second grade where I made, it was just, it was so dumb. It was a, several sheets of paper that I had taped together and I drew a landscape on it and then made physical creatures that lived in on the landscape, almost like a, a tabletop game, right? Uh, and that, that was early on a very formative memory that it was just so fun. It just felt limitless what what I could do in that tiny little space. And then I would recruit people to add new sheets of paper onto it and extend the map. And um, and as a child, I, I, I designed lots of my own board games. I was really obsessed with board games um, because I think of the generative, narrative, sort of endless quality of a game being like replayable um, over and over again. So I, I think of those moments. And, and then, of course, you know, stumbling upon books and and connecting the pictures inside of them to the story and realizing that someone made those uh and what what is crazy is that i actually thought the closest you could get to a job making art for for a long time was like architecture because like that's a real job someone would pay you for i think as a child i just assumed until i understood illustration I actually thought people did those like for free. Like I, I could not conceive that anyone would pay you to make the illustrations in the picture books that I was reading, that it had to be some sort of hobby that you get to do, you know, it's sort of a privilege, but that's it. Um, so when I finally ran into illustration as a career, it was like, what, this is, this is it. I think a lot of people still have that conception that we just do it for fun, right? We just <laughs> Right. Yeah, judging like, by oh. my inbox, uh everyone's yeah. <laughs> that I have lots of time to give them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, can you do this five hundred page book for me? I have a budget of twenty dollars. Like, um, no. <laughs> Sorry. I think it was the illustrator Bob Flynn who was selling T shirts that said, I have a great kids book idea. Just in like it was just that phrase in quotations. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I need yeah. Yeah, that's no, I, I would definitely be wearing that every day. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did want to talk to you about the fact that you are also an author illustrator, and this wasn't what you necessarily set out to do. Now, you did mention that you created these board games and things. And so that obviously has a storytelling element to it. So you were always a storyteller, right? But talk to me about how writing came into your life, and not just, you know, journaling, but actually like, where writing is such an essential part of your professional career now. Mm-hmm. I always say I'm like an accidental writer that, that I, that I wrote because I wanted to tell certain stories and I just didn't want to wait around for someone to write it and then get it to me. Um, so I, I, you know, I thought of myself as a thoughtful thinker, like in, in undergraduate and even graduate school where, you know, I did some, some writing as part of some coursework there. 
but but I, I never thought that was something I would lead with someday, truly. But then you get to a point where you're like, this this idea, you know, illustration is not illustration without words. You know, it 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 is images and words in context that that together create this third thing that is neither word nor image. It's this it's this beautiful kind of trinity. And and I began to write almost out of utility because I, I wanted to tell a story and and the writing was the way to get there. But but to be honest, I've, I've always felt a little embarrassed is the wrong word because I, I think my writing is fine. But I've always felt like what when are the police going to arrive and tell me that I'm not really a writer? <laughs> I know. And, and no amount of sort of kudos can can chase that away, right? Oh, never. What's the hardest thing for you about writing? Yeah, I I think I'm a really slow reader, um, you know, so it takes me a long time to absorb information. Uh, I, I think with most things, it's, you know, putting your butt in the chair is so difficult. I, it shouldn't be. Just the discipline of writing, to me, it's not my first language. My first language is imagery. And so I continually feel myself when I'm writing, running up against this invisible barrier where I cannot sketch out an idea visually. In, in fact, I actually, I have figured out that I can write by drawing, basically. Like, I will stop writing, and it's like I'm, I'm trying to get an idea into words, but, like, I just can't do it by straight conscious writing. I, I have to actually make some images and, and get some of the imagery onto paper and then connect those images with words later. So I, I have run into that over and over again. Uh, and and it's, it's something I finally just said, I'm not going to feel bad about this. This is just how I visualize ideas. Is there, is there really images first and then I write later? So I know in your sketchbooks, for example, you, you play with words and images a lot. And there's this back and forth dance. And, you know, when I've seen you flip through your sketchbooks, there's pages of notes. It's not like every page is a beautiful spread or something. It's, you know, you've got pages of notes. So do your, do your writing books look the same where it's like the writing and then you have these occasional pictures? Yeah. Yeah. Basically it's, it's, or are it's they the same words. books? <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I do have a writing notebook. Um, yeah that has like research in it. Uh, and then I will occasionally just stop and do like, I'm working on a graphic novel right now about Tolkien and Lewis's friendship. And I did just a page of thumbnails cause I, I got stuck and I just wanted to visualize not even story beats, but just like visual things that I wanted to make sure were in the book. And you know, whether that's a particular view of a, of a place or just like trees that formed a door or like I images that were inside of what I wanted to make. But I just, it was very logically difficult for me to like thread those into the writing of a book where you're just putting one sentence after another. It, it does not, writing is not holistic for me in that sense. Like it's very much like I just have blinders on and I'm going from one sentence to the next. So it's hard for me to hold the gestalt of the book. And so that's, that's what the images do for me is they like connect the wholeness of a, of a piece of writing together. Mm, that's amazing. I, I know. I mean, I have like my post-it wall that I use because I, oh, yeah. for me, I have to definitely, for me, it's color, have everything mapped out and movable because yes. <laughs> there are, you know, especially, you know, you and I both work in the historical space, right? You, you work mostly with 
historical biography, minus historical fiction. But when you're trying to tie all these, you're not only tying, you know, the characters that you're writing about, you know, whether they're, you know, real or fictional, but you've got all these timeline things. And then you've got general idea, like philosophical ideas you're trying to bring in there. And, you know, even theological ideas. So the fact that you work in with a lot of historical biography, both in your graphic novels, your middle grade work and your picture books, was that something that you set out to do? Or do you think that there's something about your work that lends itself to that genre? Uh, this was something I actually fought for a long time. I, I, re- I mean, deep down, what I wanted to be was like Chris Van Allsburg or right. uh, David Weisner, where like I just made these like lush, wordless, fantastical, magical realism. You know, that's that's the kind of thing I was trying to make in graduate school. And what I, I mean, I can't even credit it to myself. I truly think like I fell backwards into my career was that telling historical stories really connected with the form of my work, you know, like, and this is kind of the way it is when anyone's finding their voice, you know, like, it's not just like, do I draw in pencil or charcoal or whatever? It's, it's like the form should equal the content. And over and over again, I found that when I did things that conjured up narratives in the past, it connected my love of type. It connected the way I made things. Uh, it just it just resonated with the stuff that I did in a way that it was a lot easier for me. You know, I, I made a piece about John Brown for my thesis in graduate school, and met an art director who said this would be a great kids book. I mean, it wasn't really even my idea to do my first kids book. Like they they suggested this would be a good topic, and I thought they were insane. Now, of course, I still had to write the darn thing and make it work visually. But, you know, that that connecting the dots of like, oh, there is a market for this is also a big part of something I didn't really understand. I was just wanting to, you know, be Chris Van Allsburg and like the audiences will come because it's so beautifully drawn, you know, and, and then I, I found nonfiction as, as a world that really I started to make some work in and, and connect to an audience. And that clearly you have something to say about it. That- right. Mm-hmm. The, it's it, it doesn't seem to me that you're making work about things that you're not curious about. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, no one has handed me these assignments. I mean, you know, early on, you get, you get a picture book manuscript come in and you do it. But then eventually, hopefully after, you know, five, 10 years, you begin to build your own collection of content. And, I, you know, I have endless ideas about things I want to do. The real hard part is sort of picking okay, what am I going to invest five years in now? Right. So it, that to me, that is the hardest part of the process. Is what, how do you really decide which ideas are worth pursuing? So I recently heard two artists having a conversation. And one said that he created some, some commissioned work for his church. And the other artist, who was not a believer, essentially asked him whether he'd ever considered that that might turn people off. Not understanding, like, no, this was a specific commission for the church, right? And the first artist essentially apologized and said, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. And essentially allowed the other artist to to define the terms. Mm -hmm. And so I just put that out there and... You know, you and I are both in kind of interesting positions, but you you in particular. You're not creating Christian themes for a Christian audience, largely. 
I don't think you've ever been published by like Lifeway or Tommy Nelson or any of those, right? You, yeah, yeah. It's funny because I I have for years said, oh, you don't have to be a uh, Christian artist and make images out of like literal Jesus, you know. And yet I have two books with literal Jesus in them, but they are for secular publications. So yeah. right, right. So and you're not only creating secular work for a secular audience either. You're you're creating unapologetically Christian work for a secular audience, right? Your primary publisher is Abrams. That's right. Why do you think that you're able to bridge that divide fairly comfortably? And what would you say to artists who are struggling with that apparent conflict? Now, I will say that this is a question that I feel like comes up cyclically. And I thought we (laughs) solved it in the 90s, but it seems to be coming up again. So I'm interested what you have to say about that. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I do not believe I am working for the church when I make my work. So you're right about that. My audience is always people who are um, outside of Christendom, you know. So, yes, these these are things that are meant for the world to consume. But I have figured out a way to make work that is both, like, too weird for the church and too churchy for the world. So, the I, I have I have decidedly put myself in you know the eight thousand book sales per book uh, you know category for the rest of my life, um, which is you know again I'm not I'm not being persecuted. This is this is the kind of work I want to make, but it is a weird category, um, and I, I have never really thought about changing that. I mean, again, sometimes I will imagine like my Instagram feed or my Twitter feed from someone who is not a Christian and probably they're like enough of this, like, can we get some other content here? And maybe that's true. But to to be honest, I can't, I couldn't really change the stuff I'm interested in. So I think the advice I would give people is we're all genuinely motivated and curious about certain things. And so Trust that those are given to you by God and follow those. Don't try to engineer the things that you are truly passionate and interested in to fit a market, to fit an ideology, to fit a particular demographic. That That's not a road to being content as a person who makes things. You know, you, you were given this set of interests for a reason and just trust that that will produce a body of work that's going to be sincere and and genuine. And, and if you are sincere in your work, that that is all you can do. I mean, really, I mean, then let, let people other people have their reaction to it. But you know, the last thing you want to be doing is contorting yourself to fit some sort of thing that you think will be popular or, you know, blessed or, you know, there's there's two sides of that, you know, thinking the world will celebrate you versus thinking God will bless you for being so spiritual. Both of those things are are, are fallen um, ways to make work in my mind. Yeah. And I think nobody that was looking at your work could say that it was not sincere. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is some of the most original work that I've seen. I mean, ever, you know, oh, I'm constantly oh. inspired by it. And, you know, I, I sort of have this like little Trinity going on in my head uh, right now of like you, Stephen Procopio and Scott <laughs> Asman are sort of uh-huh. like these, like, you know, Uber drawers, you know, (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm working in a completely kind of different set of concerns, but I look at you and I'm like, oh man, you know, there, it's just sort of an endless, uh, 
you know, deep chasm to, to learn from. And it's just, it's just incredible. And I think the, you know, the work speaks for itself, you know, and it, it draws people in. You can't deny the quality of it, the, you know, anyway, I'll stop flattering you, but cause that's not, I know that's not what you came for, but yeah, I mean, every word of it. Well, this, the sincerity aspect of making work, I do think is really important. I, I well, there was fanographics was interested in collecting some of my sketchbooks at one point. Um, and I sent them a proposal and they turned down the proposal um, partially because they, I think they thought that my church sketchbooks were sort of a critique of the church or a, or a, you know, a send up or a sort of parody. And so the, you know, they just point blank said the, the sincerity of these is not, you know, what we're looking for. <laughs> we want you to be sincerely disparaging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we yeah. want you to seri- sincerely deconstruct. <laughs> Of all the things to be rejected for, though, I mean, I was like, I'll take this kind of rejection all day long. Yeah. So you are quite well known for these sketchbooks of your sermon, your sermon notes, you know, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're, you know, very, they're stunning meditations on your church's sermons, you know? And at some point I feel bad calling them sermon notes because it makes anyone who doodles (laughs) in the margins of the, of the liturgy feel totally depressed. They, they have actually turned (laughs) now into like, full-blown illustrations that I just happen to do while I'm at church, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, but yeah, they certainly started out as things where I was responding um, and truly trying to record everything that was said. And you could, if you put them all in a row, you can see there's a lot more information in the first ones. And then now they've slid into just like almost pure, like image constructions. Yeah. What does it do for you when you're drawing in church? Oh, well, I, I mean, just very practically, I just have a hard time watching someone talk. I'm, I'm just too distracted. And so drawing, just like the people who crochet in my church, I, I think it's a tool to listen and to receive. Um, and then also it's, it's a way, uh, you know, without sounding too corny, I think it is a way to worship. It is a way to reflect on biblical ideas that I'm trying to capture an image form and that the ruminating and the thinking about them is, you know, like when you recite a psalm over and over and you memorize it and you dwell upon it. And so drawing to me is like that because you spend so much time trying to embody something or capture the essence of something or make an unusual visual metaphor that 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 does cause me to think about those things and and reflect on them and uh, you know, occasionally even be moved by them, you know, not, not that I've made a beautiful drawing, but that, you know, images are so powerful to me that I can, I can occasionally surprise myself with a, with an image that is, you know, just something I didn't expect that that's moving. Hmm. Have you gotten any kind of pushback from the people sitting around you or like that you're distracting other people or leading our young people astray with your strange drawings? <laughs> no, I go to a, a wonderful church called Grace and Peace Fellowship that was uh, founded by a bunch of folks from Labrie uh, in 1969. And so there's a basically the entire church is poets and, and writers and, uh, and artists. A bunch of hippie and, artists. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of hippies. So, uh, you know, the, the problem actually is that people have suggested over the years, um, installing a camera to, to project the drawing in front of the church while I'm, working, um, which also is a, a horrid idea. And I, I said that right. would, that would not produce the intended results. Uh, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, 
So you're you're not going to be up in front of the church doing a, a painting? <laughs> no, I you know, I remember growing up going to my grandma's church, uh, a little country church in Nevada, Missouri, and they had a guy come in once who did a, like a, a charcoal during the sermon. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he had a little easel, and I, I don't remember exactly what it was. I don't think it was abstract, but it, it was definitely – a scene of you know maybe the op- the empty tomb or and it was kind of that that thing when you go to like a, a boardwalk and the guy does the painting and then turns it upside down and it's a and it's a image you know oh, it, wow. it, there uh-huh. was a bit of a there was a bit of a it felt like a vaudevillian act he was doing in a way right. but I, I I remember it very vividly I'm like this is crazy someone is doing a drawing in the service you know right right yeah it is it's interesting you know figuring out that balance between almost like the public and the private when you're in a communal worship setting. I, I think that there's, there's some growing pains probably to we're, we're kind of in the growing pains stage of it, but I think it's, I think it's interesting when people kind of take risks with the worship service, although I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist as I get older and more curmudgeonly. <laughs> well, it's funny because like the art, art making like visual art, in the worship service, you know, it's it's basically basically liturgical art is the category right. that people have for it, uh, unless you're making you know illuminated drop caps for your liturgy or something. Right. So you know, the idea of what what would art be in a church that was not liturgical uh, is is a pretty interesting question, um, and you know, one that you know I have thought about over the years, and what would it truly mean for a church to support? Uh, an artist that that was not where the art making did not have sort of some sort of function inside of the worship service or some sort of uh, evangelical goal. It was just like we are going to have this art be part of our our, our community, uh, and I think there's a lot of ways to do that actually. Yeah, yeah, I know that that's something that we've wrestled with on and off over the years about like it, should there be art galleries in churches or should the art that's created in church or displayed in church be part of the liturgy. And those aren't, you know, necessarily value judgments. They're more, you know, placements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just have one more question for you before we go. And well, it's a, a kind of a two-parter. What are a couple of your most far out dream projects? Like, do you want to design an opera? Do you want to, you know, like, what would you do if like there were no limits on you and it's just some some kind of kernel of something that's been floating around in your head for a bunch of years that you'd love to try if you could? You know, I can I tell you, I love musicals, but I have no ability to write songs. So maybe this is where we can finally partner partner up. Um, no, I, I have always wanted to do uh, long form fiction storytelling. You know, like this was the stuff I read as a kid and then as I was obsessed with, you know, basically fantasy novel storytelling. And I have never attempted it. I, I, I'm, I'm terrified of it, frankly. And, I, and I'm in awe of anyone who can write fiction like you do or anyone that, that, that writes long episodic fiction. So I, I've had kernels of ideas that have lived in the sketchbook for years that I'm basically terrified of. Um, so that's that's one big project that I've always wanted to do. I mean, I've, the, I've, I have a, a side project. I've made these comics about the Holy Ghost for years. Love those. Thank you. And and that was one of those projects that was like, oh, I'd love to like have this run as a strip somewhere. Uh, and actually, Abrams is collecting those plus a bunch of new ones that'll be out 
next year in a, in an anthology. So that's, Ooh, a, awesome. that's a dream that sort of came true, but yeah. Wow. So I've, I've always wanted to do a postage stamp too, but I don't think my work really holds up. Uh, oh no. Are you kidding me that I have one of your prints with the uh, lyrics to Holy, Holy, Holy that I think each and every oh, one of the, that, it looks great. like a postage stamp. Uh, they, well, that's sheet. great. So I just need like 50, a page of 50 stamps that add up to a sketchbook. Yeah. That's good. So cool. That would be so fun. Well, besides your far-flung dream project, what are you working on now? What's next for you? So I, I mentioned the Holy Ghost coming out next spring, and then I'm working on a long-form project, a uh, graphic novel about the friendship between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and how they were Christians. Uh, but really, they, they accidentally reinvented literature and fantasy in the middle of the uh, 20th century, just by being friends, basically. Um, and so the book is really more about what fellowship does to us in a creative community. It just uses the lens of Narnia and, and Lord of the Rings and their, their little container of their friendship as a, as a way for young people to understand what it means to make stuff. So, and it also has like you just a casual, uh, complete history of mythology and fantasy uh, embedded into it. So, oh, just a casual one. You know, yeah. just a real quick project for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure that this is going to be one that so many illustrators are going to look at and go, "Man, I wish I had had that idea. <laughs> I wish I had done that." Yeah. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm like counting the counting the days till it comes out. When does it come out, by the way? Oh, well. Do you have the pub date? That's a great question. Uh Oh, <laughs> spring 23 at the moment. Okay. The manuscript is is uh sitting right over there. I'm I'm afraid to look at the notes from my editor. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll start the art um, later this summer and should the art should be done by next spring. And then, you know, it takes a kind of a full year to get it all packaged and ready to go. Right, right. Well, I'm eagerly anticipating that. So, John, thank you for taking the time oh. from your very, very busy life to have a chat. And thanks for being on Makers and Mystics. OK, bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. This episode concludes our bonus summer series for 2021. We'll return with season nine of the podcast on Tuesday, September 14th, with a series of new interviews, artists' profiles, and roundtable discussions. Be sure to visit makersandmystics.com to explore our library of over 200 artist interviews and conversations. Mm-hmm.